Hello, I'm Ian Madison, a fellow in the International Development Department and the producer of the Refugee Realities podcast series. In this series, students from the course on Refugees and Forced Migration here at the LSE bring us interviews with a range of people on the topic, covering the policies and politics that shape asylum to the lived experiences of refugees themselves. In this episode, Ben Grazda takes listeners to the forefront of the internal displacement issue in Somalia, where Mogadishu officials are spearheading a new policy to address the needs of hundreds of thousands of IDPs in their city. Talking directly with staff from Mogadishu municipality, we hear firsthand what it's like to deliver durable solutions to the dynamic city while simultaneously coordinating with national and international stakeholders. Ben Grazda is currently completing his master's degree in conflict studies in the LSE's Department of Government, where his research focuses on the weaponization of social media. Ben spent four years working for humanitarian organizations in Kenya, Nigeria, Iraq, and Syria. He has also worked as a communications assistant at Sisi Niamani, a local NGO in Kenya that worked to combat disinformation over SMS during the country's 2013 election. During his time at the LSE, Ben co-founded the organization Bridging Perspectives with three other conflict studies students, where they organize dialogues between students at the LSE and students in countries that are underrepresented at the institution, such as Iraq, Lebanon, and Colombia. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, and welcome to this podcast on internally displaced persons in Somalia. My name is Ben Grazda, and I'm a current master's student at the LSE studying conflict. Before my time here, I spent four years working for humanitarian organizations in Nigeria, Iraq, Syria, as well as in Kenya, where I focused on the situation in Somalia. I'm very excited today to speak with two incredible people, Amun Osman, who is the Durable Solutions Consultant for the Municipality of Mogadishu, and Mark Yarnell, who serves as the Research and Report Officer for the UN Secretary General's High-Level Panel on Internal Displacement. As they are the experts on durable solutions in Somalia, they will have a discussion on the ongoing work in Mogadishu, and then Mark and I will have a brief conversation about the UN's work with IDPs more globally. Mark, please take it away. Uh, thanks so much, Ben. It's really a real pleasure to, to be here with you and, and with uh, Amun. Um, as you mentioned, my name is Mark Yarnell, and, and uh, prior to serving on the Secretariat staff of the High-Level Panel on Internal Displacement, Spent about eight years with an NGO called Refugees International that conducted advocacy on issues of forced displacement, including relating to uh, internal displacement, and had the opportunity to to visit Mogadishu uh, over the years beginning in uh, 2011 uh, up through 2019, and to see the evolution of the displacement context, but also uh, the evolution of both policies at the federal level of the government as well as at the municipal level. And, you know, based on the, um, uh, just the underlying trends of urbanization and more and more um, displaced people moving to urban areas, uh, just seemed like a really great opportunity to, to check in with, with Amun and to discuss that topic more broadly, but specifically what's happening in Mogadishu. So I'll uh, uh, pass it over to you Amun for, for more of an introduction and then we can, uh, can have a conversation. Thanks. Thanks so much, both of you. Um, I'm really happy to be on the on the podcast. Um, yeah, I mean, it's rare to to see Mogadishu and its experiences with internal displacement um, take such a central sort of 
discussion. Um, we've had numerous challenges over the years in sort of centralizing the, the displacement um, discussion uh, in Somalia broadly and, and more specifically with the very distinct challenges that exist in Mogadishu. Um, by way of introduction, my name is Amun Asman. Um, I've worked in Somalia since the end of 2011 primarily focusing on internal displacement, first as the first national coordinator for the protection cluster, the humanitarian cluster on, on, that focuses primarily on, on protection. Um, I moved then on to, to work with the ICRC as their first um, national officer on, on conflict um, and better understanding the drivers of displacement. Um, since then, I've worked uh, with UN Habitat and with UNHCR again, um, focusing, focusing on displacement, particularly internal displacement and bridging between the humanitarian and development nexus. Um, I'll leave it there for now and then we can go into further discussion. No, it's a fascinating uh, a career and it's, it's only uh, still, still early days too, but, but thanks so much, Amun. And, and um, I guess to, to start off, yeah, just... Um, uh great to hear an initial snapshot of um the current state of affairs in Mogadishu with regard to uh people who have been displaced internally there's there's obviously been numerous waves um uh of people uh fleeing into Mogadishu whether related to to famine or conflict um but just yeah an initial kind of overview for those who may not follow the events in Somalia so closely, just kind of the basic context, the conditions, and, and some of the major um, preoccupations uh, that you're facing with regard to uh, internal displacement there. Thanks. Okay. Um, often when Somalia is introduced, it's introduced with the, with the beginning sentence of Somalia has been in conflict for the past 30 years. Um, it's been riddled with droughts and famines and, and sort of the yo-yoing between the two. Um, and of course, with that, as you mentioned, um, comes extensive sort of internal displacement over the years. Um, up until 2012, we were either between a transitional federal government or just uh, conflict. And so since 2012, there's been a lot more concerted effort to sort of um, streamline and, and focus on the plight of the internally displaced. Um, but yeah, I mean, over the years, we've, we've seen people that have been displaced for over 30 years, um, which are a significant proportion of the number of displaced people that we have in Mogadishu and, and across Somalia uh, more broadly. Um, if I hone in a little bit on, on the experience of Mogadishu, a vast majority of the internal displacement that's been happening over the years throughout Somalia has really focused on, on the capital, either people being displaced into the capital or out of the capital. Um, for various different reasons, right? So the capital really provides a safe haven. It provides the first point of humanitarian assistance. Um, it provides anonymity for many people that are fleeing very localized conflicts from all over the country. Um, so the experience in Mordisha has been really volatile over the years. And then once people have settled as well, we have sort of unique experiences with the dis displacement um, experience in Mogadishu, particularly looking at um, protection violations such as that of forced evictions and gender-based violence, um, which have been super high in, in IDP settlements um, that isn't comparable to any of the, the, the rest of the population at all. Uh, well, and I also, you're, you're correct, you, you uh, called me out in, in terms of uh, giving that exact uh, traditional uh, introduction about the 
the challenges that Somalia has faced. Um, but now Somalia is very much on the, you know, the leading edge of uh, establishing policies and, and frameworks and, and guidelines on how to um, not only just respond and address to internal displacement, but how to, how to arrive at uh, solutions that, that can last um, so that people are no longer uh, um, uh, facing vulnerabilities as a result of, of the displacement. And I think, yeah, one, one question I have is kind of, yeah, when did, when did things shift or what, what were the factors that kind of contributed to, um, especially at the, the municipal level with your work in Mogadishu that contributed to um, uh, the local government really prioritizing this issue in ways that, that some governments don't? Um, I mean, numerous things changed, right? Like this, this, this chronic state of internal displacement that we saw in, in Somalia across, um, but more specifically in Mogadishu was just simply not sustainable, right? Like we had a caseload in early 2011 um, of upwards of, of 1 million people displaced in Mogadishu, right? Fleeing famine, fleeing conflict, so on and so forth. Um, today in Mogadishu, we're seeing upwards of 800,000 people who are internally displaced. So this, this idea that um, we can tackle sort of like the root causes is, 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 is great in, in the sense of um, responding in a, in a humanitarian way. However, we have to deal with the realities of what it looks like in our capital city and, and our smaller cities throughout the country, right? Um, and so this overwhelming sort of infrastructural resource, basic services challenge that the municipality of Mogadishu was facing um, really was a driving factor for the municipality starting to, to look at the challenge of displacement more holistically and more seriously. No, it's really, really helpful. And I think um, uh, provides uh, interesting experiences and lessons for other municipalities that are addressing similar challenges, um, maybe if not at the same scale. And, you know, you mentioned, uh, yeah, 800,000 IDPs uh, in the city, uh, I believe, um, in addition to uh, economic migration to the city, uh, competition over access to land, to, to jobs, to access to services. Um, what are, in terms of sort of priorities of, of, the the local government Mogadishu and the Durable Solutions Unit, given the the numerous issues to work on, um, yeah, when it comes to trying to support longer term solutions, what are some of the main um, main priorities uh, uh, in terms of providing support to people who are internally displaced, while um, uh, while also engaging in kind of the broader development of the and challenges that the city's facing as it as it grows yeah i mean we have two we, we when we were designing the the durable solution strategy for um mogadishu we tried to sort of figure out what were our low-hanging fruits right so like what are the quick wins that we could we could achieve um and and what were some of the more systemic challenges that we were having and that, that also needed some level of response? Um, one of the most difficult challenges for us to tackle was the question on land, right? So the privatization, the overwhelming privatization of land in Mogadishu um, posed a huge problem in terms of, of us being able 
to respond adequately to the question of, of forced evictions. Um, and that was a huge challenge for us because forced evictions, I think often uh, when people are evicted, what, what people often miss is the associated disruption in their coping mechanisms, right? So every time a household is, is, is forcibly evicted, it disrupts the education of the few children that are going to school. It completely disrupts the household um, income structures, whatever savings that they must have had completely goes out of the window because now it's used to find new housing, buy new equipment for the house, so on and so forth. So we, we saw that every time that we tackled the basic services aspect, so provision of livelihoods, provision of um, water and sanitation services, the provision of even cash-based interventions, we saw that none of this was sustainable as long as the question of land wasn't addressed. Because as long as land isn't addressed, these people will continuously face shocks. So it was almost a cyclical humanitarian disaster that these same populations that were targeted for humanitarian assistance kept witnessing. Um, and so one of the things that wasn't going to be possible was the municipality of Mordesha being able to divvy up infinite amounts of land to 800,000 IDPs worth of, of, of yeah, 800,000 IDPs worth of plots of land, right? It's, it's simply not sustainable, it's simply not possible. So early on in, in sort of the municipalities thinking, they requested a lot of support from the international community in addressing the challenges associated with land, right? What could we do creatively to start um, finding solutions that didn't require us to either purchase land, um, acquire land somewhere or other, or divvy it up somehow to, to, to internally to displace people and create tension amongst them and the, and the host community. Um, early on also, we, we started to look at alternatives such as rental subsidization, um, the renting of not just units of housing, but also plots of land um, for, for extended periods that would allow internally displaced people to benefit from some level of stability. So, for us, a big, big challenge is the is the question on land, and it continues to be a challenge because rent can can be a solution for some portions of the population, but it, it's not a one size fits all. Um, and so we're looking at finding other solutions and and are open, definitely open to um, other partners coming in and 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 supporting on this. And then when we look at sort of the question on on access to basic services. It's something that requires a lot more coordination than what we've seen. Um, we've been quite successful in sort of rallying partners that are already implementing many of these um, many of these interventions in being able to support communities that are already starting to stabilize. So it's communities that we know are benefiting from some level of tenure security. How do we supplement that with access to basic services such as education, health services, and so on and so forth? Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's difficult to, we always say that durable solutions is not a program, right? So it's a, it's, it requires a lot of mainstreaming. It's not one partner coming in to sort of do everything. It's not the municipality being able to respond to all of the needs, but sort of where we can directly impact and then complement that with what our international and local partners are also doing to, to be able to, to to turn it into a more of a sustainable and holistic response. No, it's such a, a useful description. And I think um, 
particularly the way you described the experience of forced displacement. It's essentially people who are living in displacement being displaced again. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and it doesn't, doesn't have to happen that way. And especially if there's, there's planning and alternatives, not that it's easy, but, um, but it's something that can be, uh, uh, yeah, targeted for, for addressing. And, and again, I guess just a follow-up, follow-up question to that is that, um, yeah, in response and, and, and to the credit of the, the, uh, municipal authorities in Mogadishu and the, the original administration, there's, there's a really, um, and, and also at the federal level, really um, uh, strong uh, guidelines and policies around uh, preventing forced evictions. Um, and so I guess the obvious follow-up is, is how's it going with implementation uh, of that policy? Because that's obviously tougher when you're dealing with the, the different um, dynamics and power centers and landowners. So uh, just get interested to hear kind of uh, challenges and opportunities in implementing um, this policy, which is, meant, which is meant to address this underlying significant challenge. Yeah, I mean, so last year, for instance, as an example, we were able to, um, using the guidelines and using sort of the infrastructure that we've set up within the districts, um, prevent 90,000 people from being forcibly evicted, um, as an example. And what that means for us is that this is a really localized um, solution, right? You can have these wonderful policies and these guidelines that really do provide guidance, but unless the local district commissioners and the local communities and local NGOs that are working on this are willing to engage with the guidelines and willing to engage with the communities that are being affected um, to prevent um, the forced evictions, it's really it, it really doesn't mean much, right? So. One of the things that we've been able to do is work with, often we don't, we don't want to talk about them too, too fondly, but gatekeepers, for instance, who have a vested interest in preventing forced evictions and with district commissioners and with the community elders and the leaders of, of displaced communities in being able to create a, a, a dialogue and a direct interaction with the local authorities to let us know when an eviction is imminent. Right? So that those interventions and those um, preventative mechanisms can be put in place ahead of time. Right? So really, I mean, it's it's still at a very, very, very localized level. It's still camp by camp. It's still very, very, um, yeah, very much on the on the ground. Um, and so it's it's very difficult to see that when you're when you're looking from the top down. Um, the amount of the the amount of nitty gritty and detail that goes in. To, to preventing a forced eviction. That's really helpful. I, I guess, um, yeah, and just for, for those who um, uh, who may not have heard the term before, because uh, it's, it's so significant, especially in the Mogadishu context, I guess the, um, yeah, I mean, I, there's no simple way to describe it, but gatekeepers are, what do you say, kind of power brokers, landowners, uh, businessmen who are connected to those power brokers who, um, uh, based on their influence, are able to control access in and out of the camps and and kind of services in and out. And what what happens is that a is that a fair characterization of uh, the, the complex no, network of, uh, of gatekeepers? That's definitely an accurate accurate description. I'd also maybe add that often we we see gatekeepers as having some type of significant advantage over those that are displaced or that those that they are gatekeeping over. Um, but in reality, what we see is that gatekeepers have marginal 
opportunities above the, those that are displaced. And usually that comes with just being part of the host community, right? Being part of a more established clan system, being part of um, communities that have better networks in Mogadishu and so are able to benefit from, from the dynamics that they, that they prevail over. Um, yeah, I mean, we, we have a, a separate discussion on, 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 on gatekeepers, um, which we tackle in, in the durable solution strategy as well. Because fundamentally, they are still the urban poor, and they still, um, yeah, they still require some level of support and some level of assistance that will free them up and away from the need to capitalize on those that are more vulnerable than, them, than themselves. Yeah, no, it's really helpful, and I think just just points to the the complexity of of the context in Mogadishu in terms of having, um, yeah, how to implement policies uh, when there's the need to engage and negotiate um, with those at a very, you know, the, the most local level uh, you can think of in terms of right, right at a, um, a site for displaced people, whether, whether you're trying to make sure prevent evictions or secure access to land. So um, that's really, really helpful. Um, one of my last kind of uh, questions, and then uh, uh, Ben maybe have some, might have some burning issues to jump in on is, um, you know, we've been speaking about Mogadishu and there's obviously durable solutions efforts going on in, in other cities around Somalia where there's been IDPs going to urban areas, whether in, um, in Baidoa um, or Kismayo, uh, for example. And then there's, there's work happening at the federal level and there's um, efforts to have, uh, uh, you know, a coordination secretariat essentially at the federal level. And so just, just be interested to hear a little bit about um, how, you know, with your engagement at the, the municipal level in Mogadishu in the city, um, what are the dynamics in terms of the coordination, uh, ideally coordination with, uh, with the federal level, as well as being in contact with uh, municipal leaders in other cities? No, that's actually a fantastic question. Um, Mogadishu is more than cognizant of the reality that displacement isn't happening in isolation of the rest of Somalia, right? So these people are coming from somewhere. They are depopulating small rural towns. They're depopulating um, neighboring cities whenever there, when, whenever there are significant disruptions, right? So one of our key priorities also looks at, I mean, for the durable, I'm gonna to touch a little bit on the durable solution strategy and then I'll link that somehow to the, the federal sort of um, approaches that are ongoing. It's good. Um, don't forget this is also for academics, so you can be as uh, as walkie as you want in, about the technicalities of things. Okay, perfect, perfect. No, so I mean, for us, a priority is looking at um, returns, right? But the central priority for the municipality of Mogadishu is looking at local integration. Um, from the data that we have and from the knowledge that we uh, have been able to accumulate in the few years that sort of very little um, overwhelming, very little uh, data that is sort of indicative of the priorities for IDPs has been accumulated. Um, what we've seen is that a vast majority of IDPs want to stay in Mogadishu. Right? In 2016, that figure was at 49%. Um, in 2018, that figure rose to almost the high 90s. Right? So there is a sense that Mogadishu is a place where IDPs want to stay, will continue to stay, and even if they do leave, they will always continue to have some level of links with Mogadishu. Right? Um, and so as a city, we are fully aware that 
local integration and developing the infrastructure and the capacity of the city to not only absorb the current population that we're dealing with, but also future um, future displacements that will further also hinder the development trajectories that we see for the city. Um, with that said, returns is also a priority for us, right? So of those that would like to return, how do we best support them to be able to sustainably return? And Mogadishu City on its own cannot define that trajectory, right? So that's when we work with the federal government and we work with municipalities across the country, which is why our interaction when the national um, durable solution strategy was being developed was very much on how can Mogadishu better capacitate IDPs who we currently have, who we know have the potential to return, um, to be able to do that in a more sustainable way? What can the city offer them today? Um, and, and in what ways can the city um, support the other cities in being able to sort of build um, the infrastructure that's required, right? The other challenge that we also have is that a majority of IDPs are under the age of 18. So they're a young population that do not have any desire to return to rural villages, to go back to farming lifestyles. It's, it's not within their priorities. They're stepping away from that into a way more technologically advanced city um, where opportunities, though they may not be great, are far greater than where they're coming from. So how do we create opportunities for IDPs to go back, not just to rural places, but also to smaller cities throughout the country that also need the kinds of manpower that are, 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 are currently needed. Um, and that's when we touch a little bit on, on sort of the economic migration. I, I often refrain from talking about economic migration in Somalia, primarily because what initially brought IDPs to the city wasn't economic. It was either droughts or conflict or, or some type of humanitarian disaster. What kept them here, on the other hand, were the alternative opportunities. Um, and so the discussion very much um, at the national level and municipality to municipality is looking at how does Mogadishu, how is Mogadishu able to support? Right? Um, and so now we're at the stage, I mean, the, the national strategy is still pretty young. It's, uh, it was launched maybe two, three months ago. Um, and so we're just trying to figure out how to best engage with, with that strategy. There's also the interministerial um, body at the federal level, um, chaired by the prime minister's office, that also looks distinctly at um, internal displacement, but from a much more cross-cutting perspective. And in these platforms, the municipality of Mogadishu really tries to offer its, its solutions and, and experiences to the rest of the country um, um, in that discussion and offer also, uh, also our experiences with the different policies that we've developed. Oh, thanks so much. It's, it's really helpful. I think, I think it's, uh, it's valuable to hear the uh, discussion and explanation of, of the, different, um, uh, the different options when it comes to uh, the solutions and intentions and whether um, people who are displaced are want and that are able to return home or if many may end up um, uh, staying in, in the city and then there's a need for supporting local integration and I think being um, yeah and so looking at looking holistically at the the various uh, options that are out there rather than assuming there's one particular way to support solutions um, is quite uh, quite valuable and just given the yeah the protracted nature of displacement around the world in so many cities um, yeah there's many many 
displaced people who, who may have intended to return home um, initially, but then once, uh, once they're settled in the city, then, um, then staying there becomes more of the reality. And, and so the fact you're looking at, yeah, the multiple uh, avenues and, and ways to support different kinds of solutions is, is so, uh, so critical. Uh, so thanks for your, your description of that. Okay, perfect. I don't know, if I would add probably one, one last thing as a, as a priority for us as well. I mean, we see through sort of all of these emerging um, government entities that are taking leadership on the question of displacement, on the question of durable solutions, that there is an appetite for the government to assume its role as well, to become the authority and the responsible body for internally displaced communities, right? Um, and with that also, comes a lot of sort of friction in many ways because we see a shift in sort of how priorities were understood and how engagement with communities was done for a very long time, particularly um, from a humanitarian perspective, right? When we look at sort of the humanitarian perspectives of neutrality, impartiality, so on and so forth. And, and we see sort of the conflict, the conflict nature of displacement as well. So um, definitely, I mean, there's, there is a lot to be said about the growing appetite in government and the need to support that to, to, to a larger extent um, in being able to take to take really a strong leadership role in, in, in responding to, to displacement. And also just to make sure that it, it becomes sustainable, right? Like if the government isn't really taking the initiative on these things, isn't taking the leadership role on these things, if you don't have entities such as the Durable Solutions Unit of the municipality, um, really pushing some of the detailed, more technical work for the first time in a way that very few government institutions have done or taken interest in when it comes to humanitarian related um, activities, we see a need to sort of empower that that sort of growth and appetite. Yeah, no, it's such a good point, and and certainly that that if uh, no matter what's happening and how strong uh, humanitarian short term operations might be um, for solutions to really take hold, uh, th there's a, just the necessity of, of national ownership and local ownership and and the government to be to be assuming the role that that. Uh, um, that it's meant to, and so I think that's a, such a um, a critical point to uh, to I think end on. Yeah, ben, is there any uh, any other questions you'd like to to press on us? I guess um, I would just like to kind of ask, and well, first of all, thank you. Um, but I'd just like to ask uh, if if someone was wanting to learn more about uh, the durable solutions that you're working on in the municipality or in Somalia in general. Um, whether they're kind of a, an academic, uh, a new student, or if they're looking for a job in the industry, where do you think uh, would be like the, some of the best places for them to, to look and learn more about your work? I would definitely say um, for them to have a look at sort of the Durable Solutions Unit's website, the dsu.so, where a lot of sort of the publications and the work that we've done over the last two and a half years um, is, all, is all uploaded. This is a good place to start to see sort of where the government is sort of building its own entryways into the discussion. Yeah, start at the start at the source. I would I would support that. DSU.so. Thanks. Is there anything else that you want to uh, highlight that we may have mentioned about their work or something that you think is important for people to pay attention to? Well, I definitely think. I mean, generally, discussions such as these that really explore the the work that's happening in Somalia and more specifically in Mogadishu really do aid in being able to grow the conversation and also grow the expertise that are that may be interested in sort of engaging with us because we're fundamentally always open to to new 
ways of thinking and new ways of, of tackling some of these huge but also quite unique challenges that we have. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It was my pleasure. Thank you both so much for your time. All the best. Yeah, and it was really great to uh, to chat. And uh, I hopefully we'll we'll just have a, a even more informal catch up next time. But uh, all the best with your your work there. Great. Thank you so much. Have a good evening. All right. Take care. Now I'd like to move to a brief conversation with Mark about his experience in the panel's work with IDPs more globally. So uh, Mark, it'd be great to get your uh, perspective, you know, using your experience both at the UN and also um, in your past career in the uh, working for advocacy organizations in US and European capitals, as well as doing implementation on the ground uh, in some of these contexts. And so I just wanted to kind of touch on a few issues with durable solutions more generally, and then also talk a little bit about the, the panel and some of your work there. And so going on the topic of durable solutions, do you see Somalia providing lessons that will be applicable in other contexts? And what are some of the other trends you're seeing globally that you'd like to highlight as solutions? Yeah, I think Somalia does provide lessons that, that can certainly be, uh, be applied in other contexts. Um, and, uh, you know, I think, I think first and foremost, it's the issue of, of addressing displacement uh, uh, as a, not just a humanitarian issue, but a longer term development challenge. I think that there's just the nature of the, the industry and, and the way that agencies respond and providing critical life-saving care and support to people who are displaced, which is essential. But in a place like Mogadishu and in so many other places, uh, people are in displacement for several years, five years, decades sometimes, like in Mogadishu. And then it's really, you know, you, you need tools that are far beyond uh, humanitarian short-term response uh, programs. And so the fact that with Somalia, both at the national level, but also the local level, took the step to incorporate uh, internal displacement within their national development strategy um, was so important because it basically it ties displacement to the broader development uh, objectives of the country. And rather than treating displacement as a siloed issue that that will be addressed by short-term humanitarian assistance, there's a recognition that it's 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 uh, something that is connected to economics, to politics, to governance, to fragility, to climate change. Um, and so in terms of getting to resolution, um, uh, linking it to those broader, uh, you know, uh, urban planning and, and uh, livelihood and economic opportunities and issues around land um, means that you're addressing displacement in all the, the complexities that, that are there. Uh, and so because Somalia, yeah, not, not only in having... Um, you know, durable, durable solution strategies, but in, in really incorporating the needs of displaced people within their development strategies, which then links to ideally development uh, financing support um, is something that I think other countries can, um, can look to as, as, uh, as a way of addressing the issue. Yeah, no, excellent points about kind of the more holistic approach that's needed. Um, and then moving to the issue of land, which you, which you touched on before, with climate change making large swaths of land uninhabitable and or unprofitable, what good ideas are there for what countries should be doing to address land issues with regards to displaced persons? What trends are you seeing? Anything particularly concerning or hopeful? No, it's a really great question. And I think that uh, climate change is affecting different communities and different um, locations and countries and regions in different ways. Uh, one thing that, that it is, um, contributing to is more rapid urbanization and, and people who are 
forced to flee or or to leave their homes, like in Somalia, as we we're discussing, because of of drought or even flooding and and uh, intensity of which is increasing as a result of of climate change. And so there's just the reality of more and more people moving to urban areas if um, if farming, if um, herding is not no longer viable. So it's, you know, I think just accepting the, that, acknowledging the reality that, that with climate change, there'll be increasing displacement to urban areas. And so as with uh, national development plans, make sure that you're, there's an incorporation of displacement in urban planning. Um, I think that otherwise you could end up with sort of sprawling megacities that are, are quite um, disorganized and it's very difficult to get connected services. Whereas if you accept the reality of this displacement being part of this urbanization trend, you can try to benefit from, from people coming into the cities in terms of skills and resources they have and, and how to link them to economies and, and to services and, and to do it in a, in a planned way um, rather than uh, reacting. Um, so it's not easy, but um, it's, the, it's where things are heading. And so uh, the first step is just, just accepting that reality of how, how climate change will have a, a major influence on, um, on forced displacement as well as, uh, as migration into cities. And I guess when you kind of have that influx into urban areas, are you seeing a lot of informal camps? Are you seeing people able to kind of tap into their networks? What are the main challenges that people are, are facing when they are going to select to go into these urban areas where there isn't as much uh, formal international assistance or government capacity? Yeah, it's a good question because it's it, when people are just, just when people displace and move into an urban area, it's very different than um, in a rural context where there might be a organized camp and then um, uh, which may look more like a traditional refugee camp and agencies and governments and others can come provide provide services. Um, so in the, in the urban context, there's just incredible variety uh, and diversity of experiences. For some, they may have relatives or friends or, or others who uh, may help uh, integrate into the city and, and connect to economic networks and jobs and that kind of thing. Um, and even be able to stay with, with local families. For others, um, uh, they may have none of those connections and they end up kind of uh, finding whatever land is available uh, and, and sometimes end up being in really vulnerable and marginalized situations like um, Amun was describing in terms of being under the influence of, uh, of gatekeepers that control access in and out of uh, displacement sites. Um, and so, yeah, so I think for some, they're, they're able to, to manage it okay. For others, they're, they're in a more vulnerable situation. Um, but it's, as Kurt discussed earlier, it's uh, whether, uh, whether it's, it's um, ideal or not, it's, it's a trend that's happening. And so the more that, uh, that displacement can be incorporated into urban planning so that and, and support can particularly be targeted to those who are more marginalized and don't have those social connections and family links uh, who may have a tougher time connecting to, um, uh, to the services of the city uh, is quite essential. So yeah, incredibly varied experiences, but um, it just, it's a, it's a very complex environment for uh, response because it, as I said, it's different than kind of a, a camp out in the open where, where services are, are delivered. Uh, but it's the, uh, it's a trend that's only increasing. And, and because of that, it's been, a uh, you know, looking at how to respond more effectively in urban areas has been a focus of the, the work of the high level panel, uh, which I'm supporting, um, uh, at the moment. 
Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, when I was working with different organizations on kind of responding to some uh, urban displacement, just the vast, like the vast various ways that people were kind of trying to deal with uh, their situation. Um, the international community is still kind of trying to figure that out. And so a lot of times it's just people who are left to see what resources they can get and the international community isn't always clear with them about how they're operating. And so there's a communication gap, it seems like in in a lot of context. Um, and it seems like it's better if you can just build up everyone's <laughs> or support the whole community and build these better plans uh, for the whole whole area where everyone's supported. So, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, and moving to your, to your kind of work on the panel, one of the things that I was really interested in because, you know, obviously this global pandemic hit you um, right in the middle of, of a lot of your work. And I was looking, I was wondering, looking at uh, more of the process um, of the panel, how has COVID affected your work, especially with regard to incorporating voices from affected communities uh, and other local actors? Yeah, I mean, like like everyone in every organization and every everybody all over the world, uh, the pandemic had a major major influence on our ways of working. So we needed to uh, to adapt to that. Uh, we were fortunate in that the the panel launched in February of 2020. Uh, we were able to all meet in person in Geneva with the the eight panel members group of expert advisors, the full staff, and then the secretary general, Antonio Guterres, was there uh, for the inaugural meeting. So we had one meeting where we could all uh, see each other face-to-face before everything went to Zoom. I mean, honestly, the, the greatest uh, um, uh, challenge and, and, and um, uh, you know, really negative part about all this is that the intention was for the panel members to travel uh, around the world and to spend time in contexts uh, uh, where there's displacement and to speak with uh, displaced people themselves, with local communities, with uh, with governments, uh, with NGOs, and to really have those um, firsthand engagements. And so with the impact of COVID and the travel restrictions, um, uh, you know, most of that travel has not been possible. Uh, we were fortunate to, you know, to, to be able to pivot and work with partners who uh, are on the ground basically link up with, with NGOs, with UN agencies. Um, and through those partners on the ground, um, they were able to carry out consultations with displaced people and displacement affected communities um, on behalf of the panel. Uh, and, and there were over 12,000 uh, people, uh, individuals consulted through that process. Uh, so really, really significant. And then even just today, you know, one of our panel members, uh, Ms. Pauline Riak, is based in South Sudan, and um, and in collaborating with with a partner with ICRC on the ground there, um, we're able to do a virtual consultation uh, with displaced people in Rumbek over uh, over Zoom. So, um, yeah, not ideal, and it's affected uh, a core part of the work, which has been meant to bring in the voices of of affected populations. But fortunately, um, we've been really lucky to to be uh, supported by those who are on the ground and, and re- engaging regularly with, with um, displaced populations to be able to, to provide that input into the panel. That's amazing. I mean, it's a huge challenge, obviously, for, uh, for so many people, especially if you're supposed to basically be collecting opinions from <laughs> tens of thousands of, of people around the world. But it sounds like you guys are, are really adapting to, to the challenge. That's good to hear. I'm looking forward to the, the final product. And I guess as, as someone who's, you know, working on that final product and actually writing it, uh, what do you kind of hope is the main outcome of, of the work of the panel of all of these kind of experts and the, the thousands of people that you've talked with and given your experience um, working both at NGOs uh, in the field and also in advocacy where you kind of know how governments operate and kind of taking some of these suggestions, 
where do you kind of think that these will have the, the most impact? That's the, that's the main question. And no, I'm, it's a privilege to be, uh, to be supporting the, the panel process and the writing process and the conclusions and recommendations that the panel will uh, ultimately decide upon. Um, the report is meant to be submitted to the secretary general in September of this year. You know, and then the panel, the report looks at and we'll look at the, the broad range of issues around prevention and humanitarian response and uh, displacement in all its dimensions. But I think that, um, you know, this, the fact that, that there's so much protracted displacement and there are so many people that uh, were displaced, as we talked about, years or decades ago and are still experiencing the, the negative impact of that displacement and have not um, experienced a reduction in, in their vulnerability or marginalization because of being forced from their homes. Um, I'm, I'm really hopeful that the, the recommendations and the political momentum and the engagement by governments, especially governments that themselves are dealing with displacement like Somalia, um, that that can lead to, you know, a, a, an opportunity of, of really addressing protracted displacement and, and helping to find longer term solutions for people that have been um, experiencing really challenging contexts for, for years, which is just, um, uh, you know, it's, it's given all the resources and the attention um, uh, on displacement, I think there, there's no question that, that we can do better. And so I think, I think being able to, to have a breakthrough and, and make real progress and see a step change uh, when it comes to solutions for, for protracted displacement uh, led by governments, not just by governments, but, but nationally owned and, and with the engagement of civil society and the private sector and displaced people themselves and, and um, development actors um, to really facilitate that national ownership, I think that's where we, we hope we can have the most, uh, or the report can have the most impact. Yeah. And hopefully then, you know, for the people who are actually displaced that the Lalos will, will kind of be, uh, recommendations will be incorporated and kind of improve a lot of people's lives. We hope, we hope, but it's yeah. a, it's a privilege to be part of the work and, yeah. and thanks for, uh, your interest in it. Yeah. And maybe we can even have another discussion when it's, when it's published. Exactly. Uh, yeah. And I guess one of my one of my last questions for you is, are there ways that um, researchers or other academics could get involved with the, the panel's work? I noticed that there is kind of a call for submissions on the on the website of different written products. Is there a kind of a process for that or is that period now now over? Um, look, we're we're uh, we're going to be constantly um, revising and making edits and taking inputs right up until the end with a report that needs to be uh, submitted and and ready for you know, public ready for, for, uh, for official publication in, um, September, you know, I think we'll kind of end July, early August is when things will kind of wrap up on the, the substance of the side to a degree. So there's still, still time and, and encourage any and all ideas. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I think the best, um, uh, best point of entry is through the, the panel's website, uh, through un.org, um, and, but at the same time, I'm also happy if, if any academics are interested to just reach out to me directly, um, mark.yarnell at un.org and feel free to, to share the, uh, the email. Uh, you know, we've, we've been fortunate to, to partner with um, researcher, researchers at um, uh, University of, of London through the IDP research program, um, link up with academics at SOAS, um, uh, who are connected to researchers all around the world and in different parts of Africa and the Middle East and Latin America. Always grateful to receive inputs from um, academics on 
So, for, I mean, first on the this the substance in terms of recommendations that the panel should be considering, but then second, kind of how to make sure that the panel uh, process uh, leads to uh, more support for um, academic networks and academics and researchers to to contribute to these policy discussions. So, if there's a recommendation around that, um, happy to hear that. So, yeah, we're we're definitely eager to continue hearing from. Uh, any and all uh, interested parties who might want to contribute ideas to the uh, to the panel process. Well, sounds good. Well, thank you so much for for your time and also for lending your uh, expertise for the with the discussion with uh, Amun. Um, and really appreciate you uh, taking time out of your day and really looking forward to this hearing seeing more about your work. Of course, it's great to chat and thanks so much for your uh, interest in this and and for setting up the. Uh, the conversation with uh, with the moon and and to discuss uh, Somalia so thanks thanks so much all right take care thanks for listening to this episode of the refugee realities podcast series hosted by the department of international development at the lse and made possible by the eden catalyst fund we have more episodes on the way so please do stay tuned